0: have been. We've walked all the way through the first three chapters of Philippians and what we saw last week, we saw Paul continuing in his exhortation as we see in verse 17. Brethren, be followers together of me and mark them which walk so as he have us for an example. And we talked about how Paul is encouraging them to follow along with his example. And then we stopped for a moment and made sure that we all understood. Paul is not saying, I am perfect and I am doing these things perfectly, so I should be the focus of your attention. Paul is not saying, follow me because I know everything that I'm doing, I've been there, I've done this before, I am perfect, but notice the context as we always encourage to study our text within the right context. Throughout all of chapter 2 and 3, he has been giving these different examples, In the first part of chapter 2, of Christ as the overarching umbrella example and model to be followed. Under that, he mentions himself. And then he gives Timothy as another faithful example. And then Epaphroditus as well. And we we discussed how Paul is essentially saying, follow me as I follow after Christ. Last week, the whole goal was understanding the single-minded pursuit of Christ. And a question this morning as we've walked through some of these different texts, as we've evaluated and seen some of these different things, an obvious question would be, is the pursuit of Christ your single-minded pursuit in your life? We talked about uh, a narrow road and how the gate is narrow, yes, but also the road is narrow. (laughs) And the older I get, the more and more narrow it seems to be. How easy it is to weave and to fall off of the path. And this is why I always come back to when we've discussed the Pharisees, We talk about them, and it's easy to look at them and say, man, these guys just didn't get it. How could they not have understood these things? Man, how could they have put all these extra rules into place? Didn't they get it? But I always caution myself with the understanding of perhaps they had some right motives. Though they were misled, misguided, and incorrect in doing so, their idea to put fences around what God's law was is essentially a decent motive because in their mind it's, hey, I do not want to break the law of God, so at least if we put these four different fences around, you're only, we're only breaking man-made laws, man-made traditions and these things, but yet we still haven't touched on the law of God. So I completely understand the sentiment. But what what happens is a generation goes and you forget why it is that that rule is even in place. That tradition becomes elevated to the level of doctrine or to a dogmatic Understanding where now it's placed to the level of a gospel issue, and therefore legalism is allowed to run rampant. But Paul here is is clearly articulating to them follow after me as I follow after Christ. And you remember, we use the illustration of marriage as well. The husband should say to the wife, follow after me as I follow after Christ. That is a marriage relationship. And then he continues on, and he's going to talk, he talked about. Uh, the false teaching and those that are inconsistent in the way that they live when compared to the way that they speak. He says, For many walk, this is verse 18 of Philippians 3, For many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who mind earthly things. One point I didn't mention on uh, the previous week was at the opening of verse 18. He says, for many walk. This is not just, there's two or three, so you really need to watch for them. Many walk in this way of who I have told you before. But now I'm telling you again, but this time I am even weeping and going so far as to say that they are enemies of the cross of Christ. And as we said, there is no neutrality when dealing with God. God is not neutral on sin, though we can often be neutral, we can often be very passive and just look at it and say, okay, we all, we've all sinned, so we're just going to uh, call it what it is and just say it happens, right? That's often how the world confronts sin, but as we see, those who do these things are enemies of the cross of Christ. There is no Switzerland in this warfare. Their end is destruction, whose God is their belly. They do all things after themselves, serving their own self-interests, and whose glory is in their shame. They take great glory and great pride in those things that they ought to be ashamed of. Now, those things that were true uh, back when Paul was writing to the Philippians were true last week, that many of us agreed to and understood. Absolutely true again this week. Every single week, we see more and more evidence. And I feel like I could sit up here and go through everything that's in the news, and the media, everything popularly that's going on, we can give an example for hours and hours and hours on end just from this past week alone. Glorying in their shame, the serving of self, who mind earthly things. But then we discuss this beautiful contrast of verse 20 and 21 where he takes the attention back off of those, who are, those that are the false teachers of which there are many. But now in verse 20, reunites himself to the body of believers in the Philippian church saying, but our, for our conversation or our citizenship, our place of belonging is in heaven. From whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. How beautiful a truth it is to know that our citizenship is in heaven and it is not eternally destined for Glenwood Springs, Colorado. Now, that's not I'm not trashing the city, so any of you that are super big Glenwood Springs people, like, you wear the flag, the cave, You got everything decked out, uh, Colorado. It's great. It's better. Than, some parts are better than Michigan. Um, it's better than where I enjoyed Michigan. I'll tell you that much. Um, but the beauty of understanding that for the Christian, our citizenship, the place where we belong, truly is in heaven. Do you truly believe that we are simply passing through here in this time, that this is not our home, this is not our eternal destiny? Do you truly believe that heaven is a reality? That rejoicing in heaven with all the saints of old, with the angels, praising and worshiping God before the throne is a reality that is forthcoming? One of the ways to to compare yourself to this and to actually evaluate is a simple question, is do you live as if that is the reality? Again, the contrast here is citizenship in heaven versus those who are minding the earthly things. Are you setting your affections on those things that are here or on those things that are above? A single-minded pursuit of Christ does not necessarily mean you will accrue every bit of comfort and every bit of finances that you ever desired here. Now, am I saying that a person who is successful and has done well has completely abandoned a pursuit of Christ. Absolutely not. And I'm throwing that in there because we can often get that misunderstood. Man, that person has money, they're successful in their work, so they must not care enough about Christ and they must only love their job. I firmly believe that there are absolutely wonderful Christians who have been gifted and blessed with so many different privileges and so many different blessings that are now able to help in so many different ways um, because of that. So let's always caution ourselves to see a large church and to go, see, they must be doing things falsely. Or to see a person with great wealth and to say, see, they must only be pursuing money. I want to offer that little bit of caution. But here he talks about that citizenship. And then in verse 21, talking about where it is that we are looking for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, he says in verse 21, Who shall change our vile body, that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body, according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. We are consistently and constantly being sanctified by the work of the Spirit, conformed into the image of Christ. This is happening both spiritually and is eventually going to take place with our physical, literal body. Our vile bodies being fashioned like unto his glorious body and I made the point and a lot of you agreed and I'm still bitter that this is probably not going to be the glorified body I have in heaven okay but as I'm getting older I'm actually okay with that because for the first time in the past year things start to hurt on occasion I know no, okay half of you are saying don't even start <laughs> yeah. um, I remember it started probably when I was like 13 or 14 I would get up get out of bed And so my toes and, like, my ankles do this thing, but I, like, I creak and I pop a lot. I'm sure some of you understand what this is like. Um, It's a very weird thing. I'm totally okay, I think. Um, I think I just need, like, more oil in my (laughs) ankles. Um, But right now, I understand 27, still in fine shape, right? Things still work. Everything is great. It's not always going to be the case. Yeah, not always going to be the case. And I'm starting to realize that, and it's making me sad. Let's move on. Um, But how beautiful a picture that is, and even in the clothes, the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. We talked in the Sunday school uh, this morning about how Christ has received all authority in heaven and in earth, and how that is all-encompassing, that is complete, that is total. He is going to bring into subjection all things under himself. Nothing is left outside of that, and you can say, well, what about, yes, that too? Each and every thing is going to be brought in subjection under his feet. Now, I understand that that's a lot of review, uh, but I think it's so important that we understand all of our context here. And it's because of all of these things that Paul is going to get to say, in large part, what it is that he says here in verse 1 of chapter 4. He writes, Therefore, my brethren dearly beloved and longed for, my joy and crown." So stand fast in the Lord, my dearly beloved. Let's pray. Gracious God, we, we thank you so much this morning for those things that you've given to us. We, we thank you and we praise you that we're able in this time to come together as your people gathered together to sing songs which reflect who it is that you are, the mighty works that you have done, and the exact person um, of you and of the Son and of the Spirit. God, we ask that in this time that you would uh, uh, bless us and reward us with an understanding of your word, that by your spirit you would make these things clear, um, both into our hearts and into our minds. We just pray that you would continue to guide us and lead us throughout the rest of our worship here in this time, it's in Jesus' name, amen. Now verse 1 can seem very, very simple, very easy, very short, and I would, I would also agree that it is all of these things. Uh, we're not going to be evaluating and seeing a whole lot of things that are going to be far beyond anybody's understanding. It's not going to be perhaps many things that you're going to say, wow, I never knew that or I never saw that, I never understood that so much. But I want us to take very careful and pay very close attention to the language that is expressed. Before we look at this, I want us to think about how Christians tend to talk. As believers, what is our speech like I didn't say what is it what is it ought to be like how should it be but what is our speech like especially in conversation about others that may be believers but hey we just disagree a little bit our speech is not always completely God honoring it is not always um, edifying it is not always positive I remember as a kid waiting to grow up longing to be an adult because in my mind Adults could disagree, but do so well without having to attack the person Um, I Thought that was universal. I thought it was just kids and teenagers that if you disagreed well then I can't be friends with you or we can't talk More and more. I'm realizing that's just a human nature thing is we don't disagree Well all of the time um, Because I'm always right. That's the hardest part for me. I am always right. Don't ask Brittany. This is just a personal thing, me and you guys. But I want us to consider our speech because here, notice the way that Paul continues to talk about those individuals here within the church. We saw it in Colossians. We see it here in Philippians. His speech is constantly very positive. It's building up. It's very edifying. It's very encouraging. And we would long to hear someone talk about us in this way because of how refreshing it truly is. But notice he does not only ever speak softly. What is it he had just mentioned verses 18 and 19, of which are some that he's writing to? When he is saying For their end is destruction, their God is their belly, they do these things, some of those that are reading this are looking at it going, he's talking about me. My end is destruction. Paul, you can't say that. That's not kind. And the video I shared this morning in the Sunday School, when he talked about um, in the Great Commission and how people struggle to feel uh, equipped to properly go out and talk about the hard things, to share the reality that hell is a very present uh, reality. It is not just a loose idea that church and that um, leaders have made to oppress people or whatever the argument uh, it is that you want to make. Um, it is an absolute reality and you can break down the grammar and people can say well see hell isn't eternal well by the same standard then neither is heaven neither is anything else so you don't really want that reality either but understanding that in evangelism and sharing of the gospel there is difficult things that that entails you cannot talk about why it is that christ had to come as a perfect sinless savior dying on the cross without a mention of sin yet so often that's that's how it's portrayed first question often ends up being, well, then why did he have to do that? Well, I don't want to talk about sin, so let's, you know, you, you can't do it. You have no understanding. By nature, the beauty of grace is the understanding that because of our sin and how beautiful it is that Christ did what he did simply out of grace. But I want us to see the language as he goes through this. Paul, though fierce in his language, is often very soft very encouraging. Notice the first thing that he says about these individuals. The reason why we did so much there, backwards in Philippians 3, is because at the beginning of verse 4, he starts with, therefore. As you guys always know, you got to know what the therefore is Therefore, Right? So we had to go back. I would have felt just gross just jumping right in. Therefore, my brethren he is uniting them in a relationship with himself as brothers my brother and my family, those to whom he is close to. Now when someone hears this close relationship and you hear the word brother, some of you are saying, not my brother or not my brothers. We understand that there's good brothers, there's bad brothers. I make fun of mine a lot. I had good brothers. They were great. So I understand this in a, in a very different way, but truly... Um, the ladies that have studied throughout Ephesians, how often was unity and the idea of brethren and community just woven all throughout all six chapters? A lot. That's pretty much the whole of Ephesians, is talking about this unity. Paul here is writing to them as brothers. This is the fifth time in Philippians that Paul does this. He's not doing this to remind them or to remind himself, but that to him is their identity. That's who they are. They are brothers. Brothers, and because of culture, we'll say sisters, I suppose, as well. But you guys understand that. My brethren. All believers are a part of God's family, born again by the Spirit of God. It does not matter whether you are a brother that was born 10 years prior, 50 years prior, part of the church 1,000 years ago, 2,000 years ago today, or in 2,000 years. However long things continue. Brothers. As Paul is writing to this, you can include yourself as someone Paul would have counted as a brother. And guess what? You can count Paul as a brother. What a beautiful truth that that is. These are not um, just people you read about in some kind of a history book and say, wow, I have no connection to them. Yes, you do. The people of God intricately woven together in the Spirit by the work of Christ. So here we see brethren. We also see those whom I love or beloved Paul does not just say that they are brethren and leave it at that but he then mentions my brethren dearly beloved because he truly loves these people. did he know them all by name has he been to all of their birthday parties has have they done white elephant gift exchanges did they watch movies together? Um, did any of them probably help him nail in uh, the tents and do the other works that he has done? No. But yet Paul truly has a great concern and a great love for them. And it's not because of anything that they have done. It's not because of anything that he has received from them. It is simply the language that Christians are to share with one another, dearly beloved. If we were to bring in missionaries to Cambodia or to any other random country to bring them in faithful. Christ-believing believers. Should we not be joined together with them as brethren and call them in such a way, dearly beloved? Now, I know many of us don't talk this way, and I understand that we don't walk up to people and say, hello, brethren, dearly beloved. Some of you may do that. That's a beautiful thing. No problem with it. But how beautiful it is to know we are joined together, completely tied, completely united. The third whom I long for. Not only are they brothers, not only are they loved by him, but he longs for them. Remember, he is currently chained to a, to a Roman guard at this point. He longs to be with them. In chapter 1, he said how much it is that he longs to be in heaven and how he, he's kind of caught between these two things of wanting to be in heaven, but yet it is better that he stays and be with them. That is some incredible love to be looking between the two and say, I would love to be in heaven, but I also have this great love to be with you. That is some incredible love, because I think for many of us, if the option was currently to be in heaven or to the next day to be with our co-workers and be at work all day, don't tempt me with the choice. Now see, I'm kind of here by myself a lot, so that's another reason I'm ready to go. I talk to myself. But notice what it is that he continues to do. They are brethren. They are united. is dearly beloved. He longs for them. He is writing to them. And he continues. How many times in his letters do you see Paul writing? For I long to be with you. I'm hoping to be able to travel and to be able to go and to meet with you. He longed to actually be with these people because he had a great affection for them. The last two will put together. My joy and my crown finds great joy in the clear and evident working of god in their lives he he is rejoicing he is calling them my joy because he finds great joy in the working of god that he has seen in their lives do you rejoice in the working of god in the lives of those that you know faithfully serve and believe in him does it not rejoice in your heart as a parent to see a child who truly grows up and loves the lord or to see a spouse continuing to grow in their love and affection for God, or simply a friend, a family member. Whatever the case is, we are to rejoice in these evidences. And so Paul is writing to them and calling them, my joy, because he finds such great joy in the working of God in their life. And the fifth there being the crown. This can relate to a reward, um, an eschatological hope, or a prize. A prize. Um, But Paul here is calling them a crown. This is um, a crown in his present ministry. He's seeing this as an evidence of his his effective service in these things. The evidence of their belief in Christ. So notice he has made all of these arguments. He's made all of this conversation continuing to build as he's preparing to close the letter throughout chapter 4. All the way through chapter 3 getting into this notice the identity markers that he has listed all throughout verse 1 brethren beloved whom I long for my joy and my crown building all of these this argument building the foundation for this imperative that he is about to give at the close of verse 1 we we spent a long amount of time uh, throughout different sermons talking about how we have indicatives and we have imperatives We have to know who we are to understand what we are to do. If you were just to walk up to a person and just say, hey, uh, you're supposed to do this. This is the law of God. This is often what many people come to church with, right? It's just a list of do's and don'ts, and we're just supposed to be doing things over and over and over again. It's do, 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 do. Every time in Scripture we see these imperatives, we see it first preceded by the understanding of who we are. Why then... Does the Christian do what the Christian does? It's always explained by who you are, O Christian. Because of who you are in Christ, here now is what you do. Why is it that you care or love for the poor? Because of who you are in Christ. You do not just go and help and serve because those are good things. Remember our contrast of holy and moral. There is an insane amount of moral people who do good things and do wonderful things in their communities. Zero holiness, zero belief in God, zero desire to ever serve or love after God or in any other way. There are many other religions that promote morality, but yet no sense of holiness. Are we to say that they are serving God by simply providing great humanitarian aid? There's a distinct contrast here. So Paul is going to give one imperative here in this one verse that we're at. But he has first explained to them, reminded them again who they are, all because of who Christ is and what he has done for them. Here he gives the imperative, gives this command, so stand fast in the Lord. And then he adds on to the end again, my dearly beloved. Stand firm. This is the Greek word steko. This has military meaning of those on the front line to hold their position while under attack. Imagine you're going into battle and you're in the second row and you're sitting here going, man, this is great. I'm in the second row, we're going to go old school fight, right, swords and shields, all of that. And you're saying, man, at least I'm not in the first because that's a little rough. Those are the first guys that always get shot with the arrows, right? How badly do you want those in front of you to stand firm? Really bad, OK? Uh, think about, well, this is actually a great illustration for you Broncos fans. Okay, Your offensive line is miserable, right? By the way, every team thinks their offensive line is awful, no matter how good they are. Okay? But as a quarterback, imagine yourself as the quarterback. You're going out to run a play. It's a passing play, and you're sitting back. I'm going to get killed because no one up in front of me stands firm. They're all just turning to the side and letting these 300-pounders that run faster than anybody else in the world come through and destroy me. There is great concern in this. Here, an imperative, a command to stand firm. Believers must hold their position while they're under attack. Flip over to Ephesians chapter 6. I should have one of the ladies come up and talk about it, but we're not going to do that. In Ephesians chapter 6, verses 11 through 14, but we'll actually just start back in verse 10, we see this understanding again. It's not a surprise that Paul is using this word of stecco with a military meaning because Christians are in a war. There is a battle. It is not just a metaphor. It is an actual thing that is taking place, starting in verse 10 of Ephesians 6. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Stand therefore, having your loins girt about with truth, and having on the breastplate of righteousness. And then he continues on with each element. Stand firm in these things, to withstand the wiles of the devil he may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all, to stand. Stand firm in those things that are good, that are true. Again, remember where we started this morning about understanding we could go from just this whole week and look at different things going on in the world and we could go back and forth over it. We could show what's wrong with it. We can do all of these different things. But does that not motivate you more and more to actually take a stand for those things that are true. How discouraging is it for those who quickly back away at the first sight of trouble, who something happens, um, and they're ridiculed because of it. They hold a biblical Christian position, or they say something that is biblically true, they're criticized, and the first instinct is, oh, let me retract that, apologize, and now submit to those powers that are around. This is, all, this is honestly one of the first responses that we see so publicly, now that there's such a lack of standing firm, standing fast in each and every way. This means standing firm and holding fast to sound biblical doctrine. Well, yeah, but Pastor, that's a hard doctrine. I'm not sure I can really hold, I can't really hold fast to it because some people may not appreciate it. Some people may not understand it. They may not really love it or they may not get it so much. They may not like it. Does that mean we then just cast out all all firm belief in any kind of doctrine because it's difficult? Uh, D.A. Carson wrote a book. It's called The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God. I encourage you to read it. It's weighty, but so many things Christians are to hold tight to we can often hand off at the first sight of some kind of discontent the first sign of someone saying, no, I don't believe that. Um, what recently happened, again, within the last number of years, when Rob Bell's book came out about how hell isn't real, right? That love is going to win out in the end. How quickly churches got sucked into that and said, yeah, because I'm tired. of. I don't like preaching about hell because that's concerning. It's difficult, and people don't like it. How quickly so many churches adopted this do- this doctrine that hell is not a reality, that the love of God is going to win out in the end, and all people in all places are eventually going to be saved. That is not true. Stand firm. And notice that all of this verse is linking to the previous verses to this imperative to stand firm. Why then do you stand firm? How is it that you are to stand firm? He'll continue on with some of these following verses through verse 9 and how it is that this is to be done, but also you can slide right back up in the previous verses and notice we can stand firm due to our pursuit of Christ-likeness because Christ himself is the one who stood firm. In the Sunday school, we went through uh, the temptation of Christ and as, as Satan comes up, takes him up to this high place and says, hey, look at all these kingdoms of the world. I'll give these to you if you only would worship me. Does he say, man, I do want the kingdoms, and I mean, I don't have to really believe it, right? I don't really have to mean it. I can just say it so I can get what I want. There's none of this concession going on, but yet Christ instead digs in firmly, citing back into Deuteronomy 6, of thou shalt only worship God and God alone. We see all throughout Hebrews, we see uh, Christ is the perfect example of standing firm and standing fast in all of these things, did he not stand firm on who he was during his ministry on earth? When he claimed to be who he was and people were were criticizing him and he was going to be outcast and all the popularity seemed to go away, did he stand firm and say continuously who it was that he was and what he was going to do and helping them understand the Scriptures? Or did he say, you know what, this isn't working as well you remember in John 6 when everybody started to fall away, they loved the food, they loved, the, they loved getting the fish, they loved the bread. Then the minute he started opening his mouth and talking about who he was, what God does, that God is in control of these different things that go on, continuing to show who he is, people start disappearing. Oh, we don't, we don't like that though. We just thought you were going to give us bread and fish. Continuing to stand firm. So the Christian stands firm because Christ himself is the one who is standing firm and by the empowering of the Spirit we too are able to do so. Keep in mind Ephesians 6. We see in Isaiah 53 of the suffering servant the thing that was foretold years before Christ ever came that he would be there. He is a lamb before shears and yet does not open up his mouth. We know that Satan is a very real and a very powerful enemy. This imperative to stand firm is such a critical thing for Christians to understand. We do not just walk through our days walking around as if everything is either neutral or God-honoring and just say, hey, I'm going to be just fine. Things are perfect. Things are great. I don't need to be aware of what's around me, and I don't need to know how to combat anything. In and of ourselves, we are hopeless in regards to temptation in and of ourselves, we are going to give in. Which is why Ephesians 6 does not say to empower yourself and to strengthen yourself by your cleverness, by being witty, by being a gifted speaker, by being super attractive, by being smart. What are those things that it is giving to you? It's the things that are given by God, by the work of Christ, through the Spirit. Because quite simply, we need God for strength. Apart from God, there is no, no, no strength, no comfort in being able to combat the wiles of the devil, to be able to go into a battle because we are insufficiently prepared to battle on our own. We need God for strength, but here's the beauty. God needs nothing. He is completely and totally sufficient in Himself. One of the speakers at the conference that Brittany and I were at in Orlando uh, two weeks ago went through part of this, and I just want to share it in closing, is this understanding that God is completely sufficient in himself. He goes in uh, to Acts 19 and this conversation that Paul is having, and Paul's talking about essentially this self-existence and sufficiency of God himself, that God needs nothing. And, And he's talking about Artemis and going through these things, talking about idolatry, talking about their gods, and conversely, the argument presented against him is, Paul, if you can say those things, you, you can't say those things because what, what's going to happen is it's going to detract from our God. If our God is going to be um, detracted because it is not completely sufficient, you can look at Acts 19, you can look at the whole dialogue there, um, but even Artemis is one who needs her minions, who needs her followers to actually be sufficient and to have these things. We talk about the aseity of God, the self-existence of God. Uh, The great philosopher Aristotle, who many of us are well aware of, um, even if it's just in name only, one of the great questions that he sought to ask and answer is, how can God be good and eternal? How can God be completely good and completely eternal? And his understanding was that if God is the uncaused cause, and he is, then he must eternally cause the creation to exist eternally. If God is eternal and existed before all things, he is the uncaused cause, then he must eternally cause the creation to exist eternally. Now, it's Aristotle, so it's a bit weighty. It's a little bit of like, you know, have a partner take notes with you a little bit. But for Aristotle, his conclusion was that if this is true and he believed it to be, then God is eternally good because God is eternally good to the universe, to those things that he has created. And is God eternally good to those things that he has created? Is he eternally good? Absolutely he is. But notice a problem with Aristotle's thinking. Just like what we see in Acts 19, God is only going to be good with the universe. Aristotle's assumption is that God needs the universe in order to be good. That he can only be eternally good if there's a universe to be eternally good to. In Islam, we have a very similar situation. There's 99 different names describing Allah in eternity. One of those can be translated, the loving. One of the great distinctions, and even though many have tried to say that um, the God of Islam and the God of Christianity are the same God, and I always say, I don't want anyone to say that to be true the same way a Muslim doesn't want to say that is true. They, they do not want Allah to be the same as the God of the Bible as well, but the understanding that his name in all of eternity being translated as the loving, how could this be so if he is eternally alone? And the conversation and many commentators and theologians have said, well, he is eternally loving and he is good and loving because he eternally loves his creation. He sees what it was he was going to make, and he is always eternally loving and good to it, to that which he saw he would eventually create and make. Because in the beginning, Allah was alone. There is no Trinity. There is no other God there with him. But do you notice the same problem that Allah needs his creation in order to be good and to be loving. That without that, He cannot be these things without something to be good too. God is good, eternal, and loving, even if there was no creation for Him to be good and loving too. Completely sufficient in and of Himself. Completely self-existing. God was never bored. He, He was never alone. He was never lonely. It wasn't as if God prior to creation was just looking around and all of this what we would say is nothingness because we hadn't been created yet and saying, man, I just, I need something. I need to create something so that I can be good to something. All of the other gods, all of the other idols, all these other ways that we understand who God is, we always require that He has to be good to something in order to be good. How do you know that someone around you is good or forgiving, or gracious, because they have shown it in some kind of a way. I know that you are a gracious person if you have shown me grace. God is these things even without anything to be gracious or merciful or loving or good to. And how beautiful it is. And and again, at the conference, he goes through this, and he's British, so it sounds a lot more intelligent, naturally. (laughs) We all agree. But then he goes through and he talks about uh, one of the reformer sibs and talks about how God in his his goodness and and in his nature and self-existence, that he has this communicative oozing of his goodness to where he reveals himself in creation, that it's his nature to share himself and to share these things. Did God need to create the world? Did he need to make any one of us? We often wonder why he did, don't we? He had no need. There's complete contentment, complete joy, complete every possible good thing existing pre-creation in the Trinity. But just like a fountain flows out with water and just bursts forth, so God communicates and bursts forth all of his attributes in one of those ways being revealing himself in creation. How beautiful that is. God is not good only when we receive something good from him. He is good because he is, whether you were around or not. Paul in verse 1 here, quite simply notes to them, therefore, because of all that I have talked about, continues with their identity, so stand fast in the Lord. Our God needs nothing. What greater place to find peace and rest and to stand fast than in the God who absolutely has no need of anything, but is completely good, completely loving, gracious, merciful, all and into himself. How beautiful of a picture that is. So this encouragement to stand fast is not just one of, take comfort, there's a higher power that can do these great things. But is the only one with any power, the only authority, and all has been given by the Father to the Son, whether in heaven or on earth. And what a great comfort and great joy that that is, that we as Christians can stand fast amidst the crooked and perverse nation, as we saw earlier in Philippians, to stand firm in those things and know that our God is the only God, and He is the one that is on the throne. Whereas we saw in the Sunday school, His dominion is over all and His kingdom will never pass away. What more does the Christian need to stand fast? Yes, you may ridicule me. You may laugh at me. You may reject me. But I know who God is. And I know what He is doing. And I know that His promises are sure. What a beautiful truth that is. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we we do just thank You for all that You are this morning. We, We praise You in this time for just how completely Good and and holy and and just and righteous and loving and gracious and merciful, and all the other attributes that you have god we we praise you and you alone for these things. We know that we are able to truly love only because you loved us first. we know that any love that we have any love that we share simply comes from you and you alone first for you are love. God, I pray that as, as we think upon these verses and though short and though simple, we truly understand who it is that you are and because of that, who we are as those who have been bought and redeemed by the blood of your Son. How beautiful a thing it is to know that you have saved Sinners, not to remain in their sin, but you have taken us from out of out of death and moved us into life. But you have taken us from darkness into your marvelous light, that we may show forth who you are, that we could magnify you and glorify you with all that we do. God, we praise you this morning for the salvation. that you have offered the redemption that you have offered that you were not bound to do that you did not need to ever reveal yourself or to offer away but God it is because of your grace and your mercy that we are so thankful what a beautiful thing it is to be able to call you God to be able to call you Father and call you Lord God we thank you this morning for all that you do and most importantly for who you are God, I pray that we would continue to grow in our our love and in our affection for you and for your word each and every day. It's in Jesus' name, amen. This morning, instead of uh, moving into um, a song time, we're going to enter into um, a time for for baptism. Um, I'm really excited about it um, this morning, If James, if you and... Janet wanna come up? Uh, I had the opportunity to uh, meet with them last week and we went through and discussed a few things and it was it was funny in talking uh, with Janet because she was, uh, well, she's shy, right? As kids tend to be. Um, but we had a good conversation and I think once she got over kind of talking to this weird looking guy, um, she kind of lightened up a bit. Um, and one of the things that before Um, Entering into the baptism, I just want to um, make everybody aware and just kind of go through for a minute um, something that she understands and that I know James has been, uh, they had talked a little bit, and um, just how excited he was, too, in coming to me and talking about what it is that his daughter had talked to him about, what she had said, what she believes. Um, And as a parent, many of you understand the excitement of that, uh, of hearing your your child um, testify to their personal belief in Christ and what it is that he did on their behalf. Um, and so it was encouraging to me not just to see her um, excitement, but also uh, of James and as, as something that his whole heart is so um, set on, training up his children to love the Lord. Um, is that fair to say? Yeah. Um, and he's probably uncomfortable that I'm saying all this right now. Um, but one of the things I just wanted to, to make the point of, and, and we had talked about, is understanding what baptism is, and that baptism itself is not a saving Work that baptism does not save a person. Um, The person who uh, rejects God but yet enters into baptism, essentially all they've done is gotten wet and immersed in water. There is no um, obedience there where baptism is an ordinance um, given of obedience upon the receipt of salvation that one has been given by God. That is something that is done in response um, to being saved, to receiving salvation in obedience to Christ. And the beautiful uh, symbol that it is and the reflection of the, the death, the burial, and the resurrection as well at baptism of being um, fully immersed in the water of understanding that when we um, are saved, we are dying not just to ourselves, but we are, our, our sin and our death is placed there as well as Christ is then raised on the third day um, giving us this newness of life. Um, so this morning, um, as we had met and we had talked, um, we wanted to um, have this baptism here for for Janet this morning. Think um, if there's anything I left out. She brought, "Do you want to say anything or no?" <laughs> no. <laughs> All right. Um, but I wanted to make that clarification because with baptism, there's so many different misconceptions with it as well. Um, it is something that is done again in obedience, um, not in any kind of uh, merit, status, or trying to gain any favor or to. Um, in any of those kind of a ways, but a simple act of obedience upon receiving salvation by grace through faith alone. Um, so, we'll come over here. One of the things I love about baptisms, though, is that they're wildly informal at times. Um, I'm going to get wet. She's going to get wet. She's got goggles. I feel like I should have goggles, too. She looks good. You like it though? She looks like a funky girl. Like a funky girl? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh Trust me. It's a lot better than it was. All right. So um. be careful, Daddy. Thank you, sweetheart. Um right. Janet, do you believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for for your sins? And do you believe that he was buried and resurrected and raised from the dead on the third day? And do you believe that he is your personal Lord and Savior? Alright. I'll we'll go ahead and sit down for a second. I'd be hesitant to sit as well. Do you want to sit? Based on your confession of faith, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Buried with him in baptism, raised again in unity of life. Hey, Maddie. Maddie has a cookie. Um, it's just, it's such a um, exciting and a beautiful and wonderful um, thing of seeing um, and as as you guys could tell, she's shy um, as many of us are um, but it's just in our conversation of her um, answering some of the questions and wanting to make sure that she un- truly did um, understand what it is that she is saying and what it means to be baptized. There's not Um, many things that are more um, encouraging than seeing a child at that age truly understand um, what it is that Christ has done on her behalf and just how beautiful of a thing that it is. Um, I know it's been probably a while since we've had one here. Um, Anytime that, um, again, anybody is uh, considering baptism or wanting to be baptized, as I'll always say, continue uh, to please talk... Come and meet with me talk to uh, one of the other men. It is a beautiful thing, again, that we do in response and in obedience to our belief in Christ as a public profession, um, wanting everybody to know who it is that we believed in what it is that Christ has actually done for us and how beautiful of a thing that that is. Um, at this time, I'd just like to ask, um, again, I told you that this morning is going to be a little bit different. Um, move into a time of coming to the Lord's table. So I'd just like to ask um, the men to come forward,